As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. I will never forget your commands. They make me wiser than my enemies. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light to my path. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, would you use, would you be pleased to use your word this morning and change us from the inside out to conform us to the likeness of Christ that we might be, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that, uh, that you, would, um, you would indeed enable us to, uh, to uh, soak in, uh, to uh, imbibe, to have the word of life written upon our hearts this morning, that we might have uh, a wisdom, that we might know your welcome, that we might marvel at, your, at, uh, at your, your wonders, Father. May we see your mighty acts and, uh, and be changed forever. So we, uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be uh, starting a new sermon series uh, in the book of Exodus. And uh, I want to, by, by way of introduction, what I want to do is you'll see the sermon title. It says, uh, the story so far. And we're going to use Psalm 105, at least part of Psalm 105, to uh, do that this morning. And by way of introduction, I don't know if you do this, but my wife Sarah and I, we often, um, <clears throat> we often when we are watching some sort of movie or TV show, and we'll be discussing afterwards, like, was, it, was it good, was it bad, you know, what do we think about it, and uh, it's very common that we'll have the conversation, or someone will ask the question, was, was the movie based on a book, or are these TV shows, a series, is it based on a book, or a series of books, or something, and the reason for that is that because often, it's not always the case, but often when a movie is based on a book, you know, assuming the book is, is good, the movie itself should be quite good. Uh, what we don't, what Sarah and I don't like doing is watching a show, a series especially when streaming, like a whole season or something. You watch, you watch a show and you realize that the writers are just trying to get you to watch more. Right? At the end of the episode is a cliffhanger, and then, you know, it's sort of this clickbait, and you, just, you, you feel like you need to keep watching. Right? It leads to that whole binge-watching idea. But you begin to realize that there's no overarching story. That it's just random episodes, it's just different. You don't really know where it's going. In fact, there have been a number of, epi- uh, a number of sh- uh, shows over the years. I think um, Lost, if you remember the, the series Lost, that was notorious for its, uh, well, I mean, I don't know what you think, but for a lot of critics thought it was a horrible ending. Just because, I guess, apparently the writers didn't really know where they were going. There was no actual endpoint, and of course, when a movie or a series or a series is based on a a book, the author is usually, if it's a good book, has taken the time to have this overarching narrative that leads to some sort of incredible climax or something along the lines. But the, the whole idea behind this is to is to be able to say, okay, there are certain types of movies or series that are what we might call just simply episodes. Episodes of random, I mean, neat stories, cute stories, fun stories, scary stories, but there's, no, there's not this overarching, where is it all going? 
And so you could say that they are episodic. They're, they're episodes. But what they're not is an epic, right? It's, it's not this grand narrative. So this is huge, and this is really important, not only for watching movies, it's important for how we think about our lives. For example, in an episode, how quickly are things resolved? Well, I don't know, I mean a half hour, or maybe it's an hour long. There's a resolution that's, that's actually relatively quick. Or what about, but what about an epic? How long does it take for there to be resolution? Or consider in an episode, how quickly can you figure out the plot? Ah, I see where this is going. I see what's going to happen, right? Uh, um, in, our, in our Clark household, we love to watch reruns or old uh, episodes of, of Seinfeld, all the various seasons, whether nine or ten seasons, and we just love. And usually about a third of the way into the episode, you can kind of see where all this is going. You can see the, hu- the humorous plot and how the various the various um, subplots are all going to weave together into this you know, silly climax. And, uh, and, of course, they're never learning anything. They keep on doing the same things over and over again. And you, we, just, we love the characters for all their, all their flaws. So in an episode, you can figure out where things are going. Listen, this is important. You can understand what's happening and why. Because it's a half hour long. It's an hour long. But in an epic... It's a different story, isn't it? I mean, even, even if it's a movie adaptation, I think of something like The Lord of the Rings. We have three different, three hour, two, two and a half, three hour movies. And, and if you're watching them for the first time, you may think, how is this, how is this, I mean, we just lost Gandalf. Well, how, how, what's going to happen? How can, that, how can that possibly be? Or I can remember uh, the movie, uh, growing up watching the, the, the cult classic movie, The Princess Bride. And uh, in the movie, which follows the book, which was, it was based on a book, um, in the movie there's this wonderful scene where the, the, sort of the, the, the immediate story is of a grandfather coming over to see his grandson. And the, and the grandfather's reading this book, The Princess Bride, to his son. And at some point in the story, the main protagonist, the, the hero of the story, Wesley, dies. He's killed. He's, um, uh, the count, the corrupt count, of, uh, um, he's, in, he's in the jail and he comes down and he, uh, this machine that he's hooked up to, he, he, um, he uh, basically kills him through the machine and he dies. And, and the little boy, the grandson, is like, wait, time out, stop. What do you mean Wesley's dead? He's, he's only pretending to be dead. I mean, he's not, he can't die. I mean, when is, when, when is, when is, when, when are the bad guys going to get it? And the grandfather kind of stops and says, well, he, he doesn't get it. He, he, li- he lives. And the grandson, <laughs> it's so good. The grandson is like, why are you reading this to me for, <laughs> right? What's the point? Like, I mean, here I am. I'm sick. You're supposed to comfort me, right? It's this, and he's like, well, do you want me to, and he asks, do you want me to continue reading or not? It's this question of, does the, is, this, is the author, was he just trying to mess with us? Is he just trying to, I mean, is there a point? Is it going somewhere? Is, there, is it a story worth telling? And that's the whole idea of an epic. In an epic, we're going to realize there are going to be aspects of the world and of life that we can't understand much at all. They're going to remain, remain mysterious. There are going to be things in life or in the story that we just can't resolve. It doesn't make sense. 
We're not going to necessarily know who the good guys are. We're not necessarily going to know who the bad guys are. But the whole idea, the whole premise of an epic is that it is a unified story that's going somewhere. Now, when I have taught uh, like Old Testament or New Testament survey uh, to, to uh, theology students, um, one of the things that is often new for them is I will ask them to read the whole Old Testament or the whole New Testament in that semester, which for many of them is something they have never done before. And it's the, one of the first times that they realize the Bible isn't just a collection of stories. It's not just a collection of, of rules. It's not just teaching or psalms. You, know, you have various genres. But there actually is a unified, overarching narrative to the, to the a narrative arc to the entirety of Scripture. That it slowly builds and builds and it revisits themes and it, and, it, and it enriches itself as it reaches back to use previous language, previous imagery to articulate new chapters in the story of redemption. And for some of you, you may be like, oh yeah, well, I knew that. But for others, some of you, you may never have known. You've never, never sat down and actually read through the Bible. One of the curious things about, I think, about Christians today and about most people who approach the Bible is they read the Bible in a way that is different from reading any of their book. When you read any book that you pick off, off, off Amazon or something, you, you just simply you sit down and you just read it, and you just go. It's so interesting how many Christians, they, all, they, 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 they sit down, they read a chapter, and they come back. A few days later, come back, read a chapter. And I want to encourage you, as we jump into the book of Exodus, I want to encourage you to read through Exodus, and then read through it again, and read through it again. In fact, I would encourage you to start with Genesis, because Exodus is very much building on Genesis, and simply read. And don't, don't choke on the bone or things you don't understand. Just, wow, that was weird. That's, just keep going so that you can really begin to see how the story is really going somewhere. Okay, and that's important. We're going to see this in the psalm this morning. I chose Psalm 105 because Psalm 105 tells the story, basically, basically beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12 and, and continues all the way through the book of Joshua. Now, this morning, we're not going to go through that whole thing. We're going to go through the first 23 verses. But I want you to see this, this very important idea that there is this overarching epic to the story. And, and that, that really, it changed. It can, listen, this can really change your life. As someone who grew up in the, in the Christian faith, uh, one of the, and, and as a minister uh, for the last 10 years or so, one of the things that I have noticed is that I will see people uh, who were not Christians uh, come to a place uh, where they, they, they see who Jesus is, they see uh, his, his, his death on the cross for what it is, and, and they, they, they decide that they want to follow, follow Jesus. And I think they genuinely are believers. And there really is this change, there really is this, this conversion, this transformation that happens in their lives. But I have also seen, and this is just so important, when those same persons come to grasp the notion that there is an epic, that all of life, that in all, the entirety of history is in fact a plan, a fulfilling of God's purposes, that he is able to use every aspect of life, from evil to good, from death to life, to whatever it may be, that he is able to bend those things according to his will. That is to say, to put it in theological terms, when they begin to grasp that there really is something called providence, that there really is a God orchestrating all things, 
that that is transformational. It leads to almost a second conversion experience, if you will, to recognize that there is this God who is using all things, good and evil, for the benefit or for the fulfillment of his plans and purposes, specifically, as we'll see here, the promises that he has made for his people. When you can grasp that reality of God's providence, the reality of an overarching epic, you don't always need to resolve the things you can't resolve in your life. You don't need to understand all that's happening. You expect that in line with a great author, I mean, this is great directors, great authors, they're marvelous at keeping us in suspense, right? Well, so often, I think I said this before, so often we'll be watching a movie with our kids present, and the kids are different ages, and uh, we'll start the movie, and, and there's all these things going on that you don't really know what's happening. And our kids will be like, well, is that a good guy or a bad guy? Or what's happening here? Well, explain, explain what's going on. The whole point is to what? To not know so that what? It draws you in to the story. I don't know if you're like me, but usually when I can figure out where the story's going or I can figure out where the movie, how it's going to end, I lose interest. Like, oh, I, I know how this is going to end. I know what's going on. Right? But it's this whole notion of the mystery of, of, a, of, a, of an epic, of someone who's telling the story in a marvelous and very counterintuitive way. Okay, so with that, let's jump into Psalm 105. I, I've got my Bible here because I want to point out some of the, the, the aspects of the, the Hebrew text here. Uh, but let's, let's read through this beautiful psalm. It's a psalm written from the standpoint of, of the exile, but it's written, to, uh, to, uh, it's written as a, uh, a word of hope and a word of promise. And again, it, what it does, it's sort of this morning we're going to use it to help us understand where the story has been up to the point in Exodus 1. It's going to give us an overview of Genesis, uh, of Genesis, uh, uh, basically uh, chapters 12 through, um, through, uh, through 50. So let's read this this morning. I'm going to read this first part. These six verses we can summarize under the words, praise the Lord, or simply praise him. It's this marvelous initial exhortation to, to simply give praise to the Lord. Verse 1, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wondrous acts, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength and seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. So we have this exhortation to praise. But to praise God, to praise him for what? What does he say? Look, look in verse 1. Make known among the nations what he has done. Verse 3, glory in his holy name. Verse 2, tell of all of his wonderful acts. So you've got the things he's done, his actions, his name. And the idea here behind, he speaks of God's holiness, he speaks of his holy name. The idea here is the summons, praise him for his mighty acts. And here his mighty acts refer to his unparalleled works in human history. Works that can't be undone. Works that, that no human could undo, that no human could engineer for themselves. Acts that often were unforeseen and truly speak that there is no one like him. So the first, these first six verses say, praise him 
for his unparalleled acts. I think I've used this illustration before, but in my family, I mean, I'm sure like, you, you know, as many of you growing up, you played the game Sorry, right? And one of the wonderful things about Sorry is that when you, you draw, you're drawing cards, you're trying to get your, 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 your uh, what would you call those, the little things around the, around the board, right? Uh, if you draw Sorry, you get to look at somebody and say what? Sorry, <laughs> right? And it's just wonderful. It's just sorry, and and often that, that sorry card is this game-changing, literally game-changing event. And the mighty acts of God are exactly that. The psalmist is saying, "Praise God for this unforeseen mighty sorry card that changes everything." That's the whole point of it. It's this beautiful, this beautiful way of, 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 of acknowledging that Yahweh can act in this epic. He can act in ways in the midst of darkness, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of death, that he can do unexpected, mighty things. And that's the whole idea of these first six verses, that praise him for his unparalleled, unprecedented acts. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way, that these terms of actions or deeds or mighty acts, that these terms all bespeak an action that is beyond human capacity or explanation that depends only on the inscrutable power of Yahweh. Uh, one he, quote, he mentions one theologian, Martin Buber, has defined these miracles as, as happenings that have, quote, an abiding astonishment. Isn't that wonderful? These are acts that are unparalleled that no, one, no, no human can do, that as you look at them, you just think, that's just amazing. There's an abiding astonishment. I don't mean how many times I've read the book of Exodus, and I'm always just like, wow. It's just amazing, the, the, the sweep, the, 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 the narrative, the arc of the whole thing, and where it's all going, and all the players. It's just, it just draws you in in this continual way that it never seems to get old. So these first six verses say, praise him. Praise him for his unparalleled, his unprecedented acts. But acts for whom? Or acts in what way? Is it just is God goes around just randomly doing these cool things? Or is there, is there a purpose to it? Is there a specific thing? And so in these next verses, in verses 7 through 10, the, the psalmist speaks of a God of promise. We could summarize it this way. Praise him, that's the first six verses. Praise him for his promise. Verses 7 through 10. Let's look, let me read that for us, 7 through 10. He says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. In this language, he is the Lord our God. That Yahweh is God of the heavens, he created all things, but somehow there's a specific relationship that the psalmist is saying that God has made with the psalmist and the community of faith. And that specific relationship we see in verse 8. It's a covenant. He remembers his covenant forever. The promise he made for a thousand generations. Well, a covenant with whom? A covenant that he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob, verse 10, as a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So this epic this, these mighty acts are all sort of in a certain direction. They're all about the fulfillment of a particular promise. Does that make sense? So that Peter say, praise him. 
and praise him for his promise. In fact, let's just, just real quick here. In verse, uh, verse 9, it says, The covenant he made with Abraham. Literally, the, the, the Hebrew is wonderful here. This is the covenant that he cut with Abraham. In the ancient world, you didn't make a covenant. You cut a covenant. And the reason you cut a covenant is when you're making the prom, when you're making this covenant, this is the, you see this actually in Genesis 15. If you're reading through Genesis this week, you'll notice this, what happens. God, is, God goes and makes the covenant with Abraham. And you know what he does? He says, hey, Abraham, bring a, bring some bunch of animals. And what I want you to do is cut all these animals in half. And this was, a ceremony, it was an ancient ceremony. You take all the various people, you take the one half of the animal on one side, on the other, the other half of the animal on that side, all the various animals, you can line them up so that you could walk through it. And both parties would walk through and then make their vow, their promise. And the whole idea, it was a mal- what's called a maledictory oath, you know, a self-hurting oath, saying, if I don't fulfill my promise, my, may I end up like, like these animals. Does that make sense? And so, and so in Genesis 15, what happens is so cool. Abraham never walks down. The, he doesn't do, do any walking. You know who does walking? God shows up in, the, in a theophany in the form of a, a burning light, like a, a burning torch. And he himself moves through or between the various animals, saying that if I don't keep my covenant, Abraham may end up like these animals. And if you can think about it, where does that take us? God is saying, I will die if I don't fulfill this promise. Okay? So we see here, again, opening our sortation, praise him. Why? Verses 7 through 10, praise him for his promise. Well, a promise of what? A promise of, well, look at verse 11 there. Do you see it? It's so beautiful. Verse 11, he says, this is, the, this is the promise. He says, to you, I will give, to you, Abraham, I will give you the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. Well, that's, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty anticlimactic. <laughs> I mean, what relevance does it have today? He's saying, I praise him, praise him for his promise, and praise him for a promise of land. What does that have to do with Palestine? I mean, like, what? So the, let me explain. The land, as if you were to read through the Pentateuch, you would see that the land is a special land. It's a land where God will dwell, where he will place his name in a temple or a tabernacle first, then a temple. The land is the way that God expresses his presence, his life-giving Present. It's where he dwells. So you have the land, and in the land is the is the, the city of Jerusalem, and in the city of Jerusalem is the temple. The promise of land is ultimately and most most fully the promise of his presence. The promise of his placing his name in the temple, his 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 uh, very his, his uh, uh, cloud that he uh, his um, Shekinah cloud that was there that to which all the, the the people could go to worship him and of course in Jesus' day what happens the the te- the, te- the temple has been defiled it's all corrupted and Jesus says something that baffles everyone he says destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it what's he talking about his body. Jesus shows up and says, hey guys, I am the new temple. I am Emmanuel. I am God with us. Do you see where this is going? So the psalm says, praise him. Praise him, right, for his promise. Praise him for his promise of his presence. 
that he is going to dwell, that he's going to stay with you, that he's not going to leave you or forsake you, that he will remain no matter what happens. He will fulfill that promise, and he will abide with you no matter how dark it is, no matter how disobedient we are. He will never leave us. He has made a promise, and he will die before he needs, before he leaves us. And so the psalmist rejoices in this beautiful, this beautiful uh, uh, promise-making, promise-keeping God. So again, praise him. Praise him for his promise. Praise him for the promise of his presence. Now look, now, now, now we have to ask the question, to whom is he making this promise? The psalmist continues then, praise him for the promise of his presence. Are you ready for this? To, to a most unpromising people. Look at verses 12 and 13. I love this. This is just so counterintuitive. He says, when they, he's speaking of the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. So to whom is he making these promises? A mighty nation, some kings to these elite group of people, these soldiers, great warriors. Abraham was an old man. His wife was barren. They had no future. What does he say? There were how many of them were there? They were but few in number. Few indeed, and strangers, and it's interesting that the NIV translates to strangers, which is fine, but it's more of a technical word. It means foreigners. It means outsiders. It means immigrants. They were nobodies. Not only were there a few of them, but their actual social standing in, 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 the, in the land was zero. They, had, they, were, they were nobodies. So he chooses, there are a few of them, and they're, and they're nobodies. They're foreigners. A few of them, they're, they're foreigners. And to continue that, he says, uh, in addition to that, he says that they are on the fringe. It's verse 13. They wandered from nation to nation. They had no home. And these are the people that God is going to use through whom, to, to whom he's made this promise. And not only that, not only, not only a few, they're foreign, and they're on the fringe, but finally, they're seemingly forsaken, as we're going to talk about in a second. Look at verse 17. We move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and we get to whom? Joseph. He makes a promise to Joseph. And who's Joseph? You know the story of Joseph? Sold by his brothers. Hated by his family sold into slavery. Really? Yeah. The downtrodden. Those whose lives have been wrecked. Utterly wrecked. Those who have been wronged time and time again. Those who literally are slaves. Those are the kind of people to whom God is making his promise. Isn't that beautiful? Praise him. Praise him for the promise of his presence to a most unpromising people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then finally, let me finish with this. It's a promise that the psalmist then says that God then begins to pull off. I love this. This is so amazing. Look, look, look in verses 14 and following. He allowed no one to oppress them. So listen, they're nobodies. They got nothing. But who's intervening? Who's, who's protecting? Who's providing? Notice here that the, who's the subject of all of these verses. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake, he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He called, now listen to this, he called down famine on the land. 
So he's providing for them. He's protecting them. But listen to this. He's also introducing pain into their lives. He brings this, 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 uh, this uh, an incredible famine, and it says, um, it says verse 16, he called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And, and he, again, who's doing all the initiating here? Who's doing all the orchestrating? Who's overseeing all of this? He sent a man before him, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Now get this. This is this is this because this if you can grasp, this is the character of Yahweh. If I were going to fulfill my plans, who would I send down to Egypt? I'd send a warrior. I'd send a king. I'd send a whole group of people. I'd send someone with a merchant with lots of money, right? I'd send I don't know. I'd send uh, you know um, Bill Gates or something like that. Or I would send you know someone who's a mover and a shaker. Whom does God send down to Egypt to fulfill His plans and purposes for His people? A slave. Isn't that incredible? I mean, doesn't it just make you want to think? I mean, He can do whatever He wants at any time he wants, with whomever he wants. And the question for you, of course, and for me, is can he use me? Lowly, little, fickle me. Can he use me in his plans and purposes? Will I stop and say, you know what? It's obvious he's going to win. I mean, he is going to win. All these other gods of the ancient years, no one's worshiping them. Today, Yahweh is worshiped more than ever. His plans and purposes are being fulfilled in history. And he's using kings, he's using pharaohs, using all manner of folks to do it. He's using nobodies, etc. He uses kings unwittingly. Look at what he says here in what, the verses that follow. Uh, in verse, uh, uh, verses, uh, verse 18, they bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, till what he foretold, again, you have to know the Genesis story, that, that Joseph was able to, to, to inter- by God's grace, by God's power, was able to interpret dreams, till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true, verse 20, the king, that is the, the, the pharaoh of Egypt, sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free, and he made him master of his household, ruler over all that he possessed. Verse 21, when it, says master, when it says master of his household, here household refers to the entirety of Pharaoh's kingdom. Why? Verse 22, to instruct his princes as he pleased and to teach his elders wisdom. Now listen, do you see what's going on here? God creates a famine. He sends a slave to Egypt. A slave who is then thrown into prison. It goes all the way down. Not just you're a slave, but you were in prison as a slave. And then that, that sort of continual decline suddenly results in this massive reversal, humiliation, exaltation. As Joseph is placed in charge, not only so that his own people might be preserved from the famine, but so that what? All the nations. That all the nations might be given bread. That they might be rescued. That all the nations would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham one who'd been sent as a slave. And it's there. That is the story of Genesis, gang. That's the story so far. It is a story that calls for praise, a, a beautiful, abiding word of praise for his promises. Promises, the promise of his presence, the promise 
to a most unpromising people, a promise that in the Genesis that he begins to start pulling off in some of the most just extraordinary ways. And so we end up, Exodus 1, we end up with God's people, that very last verse that we want to, I want to read this morning. You see it there, verse, uh, uh, verse 23. Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. It's a poetic way of referring to Egypt, the land of Ham. And that's, that's, where, that's exactly where Genesis 1 begins. We, have, we see the God's people, the, the, the Israelites explode in population growth, and they, be, they move from being a family of 70 to a nation of, that is, uh, of uncountable persons who then become, as we'll see in Exodus, slaves. And I want to close on that note because we're going to see, I want you to see in the story so much sorrow, so much pain that God actually uses. Um, because as God's people enter into Exodus, as they, I'm sorry, as they enter into Egypt, as they enter into slavery, God is going to have them where he wants them. He's going to place them in great sorrow, in great struggle. And why is he going to do that? Because he's making a nation. You know, when you go through struggles together, it brings you together. Let me close with this. One of the recurring themes of every 9-11 remembrance is the bond that is shared by the survivors. All those who, who died, all those who sacrificed their lives, all those who were murdered on 9-11, their families, their friends, they come together and they're united because of oppression, because of injustice. At the beginning of Exodus 1, you have oppression breaking out and uniting a people, uniting a nation that God has plans for. In fact, just this morning I read one survivor speaking of, uh, this is one of the survivors uh, from the, uh, um, one of the families of, the, the, of Flight 93 that, uh, that crashed near Stony Creek in, in Pennsylvania. One survivor said this, when families first came to this site, there in, uh, in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, when families first came to this site, we came as individuals. We were numb, we were hurting, we were devastated, we were alone, struggling with an unbearable agony, a nightmare that altered the course of our lives. From that fog, we slowly reached out to each other and we found strength in unity. Another survivor spoke to friends and family that were gathered there and said this, our politics don't divide us. Our issues on everything from A to Z do not divide us. My point in speaking to you today is to understand that the 40 heroes on that plane, nothing divided any of them from each other. They were united. And as we begin the story of Exodus, it's a story that begins with oppression, with gr perverse, gross, and, un and un unending injustice that God uses to bring his people together and to unite them for purposes that they can't begin to imagine for the fulfillment of his promises. I long for Good Shepherd to be a family that's deeply united, that we would set aside the things that, 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 that polarize this world and that we would unite around a praise, the praise of a God who has made promises to us. I'm a few in number. 
which nobody's. He's made promises to us, a promise of his presence that he will be here among us. A promise to us who are, we are so unpromising, aren't we? We're so fickle, we're so, we're so easily misled, we're so just thousands of things, we're so easily distracted, social media, it's just whatever. But it's a promise that he's pulling off. And I long hope you pray, I pray that he will pull it off here at Good Shepherd. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.